some, uh, some time ago, there was, uh, there was a flood that hit over around Canton, North Carolina. That's where I grew up. Um, I think it was last year. Uh, there was a bad flood that hit Canton. It might have been earlier this year. I don't even remember now, but it's been recent. And there had been another one that hit about uh, 15 to 20 years ago. And that's a town that has a, a pretty good uh, couple of rivers that come through the middle of that town. Then they meet. Uh, the Pigeon River runs right through the middle of the town. And I remember after that first flood, I want to say it was 2005, somewhere in there. I remember driving down the street that I had some family members that lived on this one street. I remember driving down that street um, and seeing lines where the water had gotten up to on the sides of buildings. Have you ever seen that after a flood? Um, and, and I remember talking to my mom because when she was a little girl there in like the 50s, she remembers, 50s or early 60s, she remembers a flood that washed their, uh, like their little barn away out back. And like the, just so it's, it's kind of like a little mini floodplain there. And when you see that mark, you know that's how high the water got, right? Right there it is. It's marked. And what we come to tonight in the book of Genesis is what a lot of theologians would call the high water mark of the book of Genesis. Now, this is a book of big moments. You know, you think about everything we've studied to this point. It's a book of big moments. But in the middle, including a flood, right, the literal high water mark. But when it comes to understanding what God's doing over the course of early history in the book of Genesis, there's this mark where we see the grace of God hit in Abraham's life at sort of like its summit. It's like where, and we've, we've had these experiences where Abraham's going to experience God in this story in a way that's very visceral, it's very cerebral, it's very emotional. In other words, God's going to tap into the emotional part of Abraham, the mental part of Abraham, the psychological part of Abraham. And so Jesus will say to us as believers that we're to worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, spirit and in truth. And he'll also say to worship with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. As a Christian, some of us maybe, um, it's easier for us to, to worship God mentally or theologically, you know? Like you, you know a lot or you've studied a lot or you've got a, 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 a Christian upbringing so you know the Bible. Some of us, we gravitate more towards the spiritual, the emotional, the visceral, the, the feelings of Christianity. And neither one of those is wrong, but we need both of those. God, God calls us to worship him in spirit and in truth. God calls us to worship him with our mind, but also with our heart. And we know when we talk about our heart, we're talking about the inner core of who you are as a person. And this is going to be not only the high watermark in the book of Genesis, it's going to be the high watermark in the life of Abraham. The man who's put forth is like our example of faith, literally the father of our faith. So we're going to walk through five, five, five points um, that I want to give you um, as we read, we'll read through the text. I want to give you five points. The five points are we're going to see faith tested. We're going to consider the perplexity of God. We're going to look at simple obedience in the life of Abraham. We're going to look at the provision of God. And then we're going to look forward to the future hope that God lays out for Abraham. So let's read the whole chapter together. It's uh, the word of the Lord. And so let's read the entire chapter together. Uh, Genesis 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. 
So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on his son Isaac, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife so that they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, which by the way, as a note, that's, there are three here I ams in the story. You'll see, we won't have time to get into all of the literary like nuances in this story, but I think it's neat that in, in three different places, we have the statement, here I am, but the one in the middle is Isaac saying, here I am. So that's kind of cool, um, bookended by Abraham saying, here I am, showing his availability. Verse 12, he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son your only son I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice so Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba and Abraham lived at Beersheba now after these things it was told to Abraham behold Milcah who also has borne children to your brother Nahor. Uz, his firstborn, Buzz, his brother, possibly twins, I'm assuming, Kemuel, uh, <laughs> the father of Aram, Chesed, uh, Hazo, Pildash, Jidlaf, and Bethuel. Bethuel fathered Rebekah. These eight Milcah bore to Nahor, Abraham's brother. Moreover, his concubine, whose name was Reuma, Bore Te, uh, Teba, Gaham, Tehash, and Makkah. So we come to these five main points in this super familiar story, like very, very familiar. Most of us will be familiar with this story. I'm sure that there are some of us that aren't. And I'll be honest, like going into the story, in my mind, I already had, I want to challenge you with a thought as we, as we cover these five brief points. My sort of preconceived idea, like what I came into the story expecting was, certain gospel parallels that if we're not careful we we have to force to make happen okay there are things that are going to point us to the gospel but we need to be careful that we recognize at the onset of the story that 
Isaac is not a type of Christ in this story because Jesus died and Isaac did not. In fact, Isaac needed a substitute. Jesus was the substitute. Now, with that, there are beautiful, you ever read those, um, I was in a coffee shop recently and they had about six different house coffees. And have you ever read the descriptions of coffee? It uses words like tones and undertones and nutty and caramel and cocoa. But um, I tested all those coffees and I didn't taste any undertones of anything, right? Like I drink Folgers and I'm happy, amen? Like truck driver coffee, right? So there, but but when, you, when you talk about undertones, we know that when you, when you eat a really rich food, that, that a super, like, like a really gifted uh, chef will prepare food where you can taste different things in there, but then together they create this incredible experience, right? So there are undertones that point us to Christ. Like for instance, we see Isaac carrying the wood. Isn't that a cool, like, does your mind go to Christ bearing his cross? Well, certainly it does. And John records that, that he carries his own cross. Um, we see, uh, we see pictures and glimpses like the three-day journey. Does that make you think of the three days? I even, man, I went down a really cool rabbit hole in my preparation this week um, with James Boyce where he says, and he lays out, and you'll see a lot of uh, historians and scholars will do this. He says that they think that um, based on certain uh, timelines in Jewish history that Christ was crucified on a Thursday and it was a literal three days and three nights because um, because it was Jesus himself said that he would be three nights in the earth and I kind of went down this rabbit hole and I'm like I, I can't go there and I don't even know what I believe about that now Boyce just confused me he usually makes me understand things better but I need to go back and study that later but the the, the point being the three days for sure like help us th- you know th- th- those things trigger thoughts but But the story here is helping us understand that we serve a faithful God who has a sovereign plan and he always accomplishes what he intends to accomplish. And it's going to be really helpful for us as we work through it. So let's start by considering first faith tested, faith tested. The Hebrew meaning for the word test, the other place I thought of it is uh, and, and found it is when David is not willing to wear Saul's armor out into battle because it hasn't been tested. Um, so the idea of a test is, is opportunity to prove. We need opportunities for our faith to be proven. Remember um, times in my life, and I'm sure you do too, where you, you're in this difficult struggle and you just want out of it, but afterwards you wouldn't trade it for anything because the Lord showed you so much in that difficult struggle. I want to give you three thoughts on the testing of our faith. Three thoughts on the testing of Abraham's, Abraham's faith and then of how that might work for us. Number one, the opportunity to demonstrate the reality of our faith comes through testing. To, when, when your faith is tested, when Ab- in this story, Abraham's faith being tested, it gives him the opportunity to demonstrate the reality of his faith. We know that we can't pay God back, but testing, what testing does is it takes our faith from theoretical or mental to real and experiential. You see, you see that? It's from theoretical to real, active, actual, legitimate faith. The second thing that when we get our faith tested, it gives us an opportunity to demonstrate the strength or the quality of our faith. 
Like at one point, the scripture even says, your faith is like, like gold that's refined in a fire. It's tested and it's refined. There's the refining process. So faith refines. Like I sat down uh, at the, we're sitting by the fire the other night and I took um, this kitchen knife that I, that, that I bought little for Christmas a few years ago that's a really nice knife and I worked on sharpening that knife. We, we even have a scripture that says, yeah, iron sharpens iron, right? Two believers can sharpen and work one another, but that honing or that sharpening process, oftentimes God takes us through these tests so that uh, the quality of our faith can be proven. And then last, I think it's important to understand when it comes to the testing of our faith, because this can freak you out. You're like, oh man, God's going to test me. Uh, here's the thing. Don't, don't be afraid that the test that God sends to you, will that you'll fail it. Whatever test God sends in your life, he will walk with you through that. He will abide with you by his spirit in you, and he'll carry you through those trials. I think it's easy to get really freaked out over a test or a trial that we might face, and we just need to know, you just need to know, like as a Christian, we need to be encouraged to know God never leaves us, he never forsakes us, he is yoked together with us, and he's gonna walk through difficult times with us. That's the beauty of the, of the faithfulness of God to the believer. It's beautiful that God is faithful to us. He's never going to make us go through something. We sung about it. I will never walk alone. I'll never walk alone. You're not going to go through the, wayward, the, the loss of a wayward son or daughter to the world's ideologies. You're not going to go through the physical loss of someone. I was talking with Debbie Gray before uh, church about the difficult time that, and season that Marble Springs Baptist Church is going through right now. They've lost Mark Mintz, they've lost Jeff Sparks, they've lost uh, a dear 96-year-old saint in that church who is legendary to people in that community. And now there's, there's prominent leaders under like medical strain right now and they're facing an uncertain future. But even as a church, we might go through difficulty. But the Lord always goes with his people. He's not gonna leave us. He's not gonna leave you. I always, I always uh, illustrate to students. I used this illustration recently with students. I remember taking one of my kids through, I think it was Tuck, and he was little. We went through that haunted house over there in Gatlinburg. And he wanted to go in that haunted house. I said, let's go. Get on my back. And he got on my back. And he buried his little face right between my shoulder blades. And we went through the whole haunted house and came out. He ain't seen nothing. Not a thing, you know. And I said, was that, was that scary? He's like, well, it's pretty scary at first, you know. It wasn't that bad. I was like, well, what was the scariest part? He said, I don't know. I didn't see anything. Just stuck my face right in the back of your shoulders. And, now, and like, just like when we go through scary things, like the Lord's carrying us and we need to, be, we need to rest on that promise. Listen to what James says. Now, also, this is important in recognizing um, the third point, which is there's a difference between testing or trial and temptation. Testing that comes from the Lord is meant to strengthen your faith. Temptation that comes from Satan or that comes from your flesh will deteriorate or break your faith. Well, like what Satan wants to do is rob and steal and deceive and seduce and manipulate. And so he uses temptation to do that. That's different from, from testing. That's different from trial, okay? James 1, 2 through 4 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness 
have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So he's saying, when you go through trials, rejoice. What God's doing is making you stronger. He's perfecting you. He's making you a better Christian, a stronger man or woman. Like he's growing us through difficult uh, times. And so we should rejoice in that. And then also, later in that same passage in James 1, he addresses temptation which is different than the testing or the trial. He says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Okay, so we remain steadfast through the, through the trials, then God's going to bring blessing that comes with that. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So there's a difference in temptation and testing, and we need to recognize the difference because temptation will certainly always break us down, bring us away from the Lord, take us to a place of consequence. We've all been in, probably if you think about it, and maybe this week you'd sit down and you jot this down, there's probably been a time in your life where you went through a difficult trial and test, and you look back and you're like, oh, the Lord was taking me through that. Great is his faithfulness. You could also probably look back at a time or a season in your life, maybe even recently, where you go, I know that I yielded to temptation there, and it cost me dearly. There were consequences to that. And so we have to recognize the difference. So, so testing of our faith demonstrates the reality of our faith and the quality of our faith. Number two, we consider in this one of the attributes of God that's not often talked about. So if I went around, if we went around the room, we're like, okay, let's, let's name all the attributes of God. It's like goodness of God, like the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, the grace of God. Like we, we, there are attributes of God that we love. There's this attribute of God that doesn't get talked about a lot, and it's called the perplexity of God, the perplexity of God. The perplexity of God is the thing that happens when you can't figure out what God's doing. You can't make sense of it. You can't make heads or tails. You're like, I don't know what's going on right now. I'm not sure what God's doing. I don't get it. The idea is that God often moves and works in a way that we can't understand. Isaiah says this in Isaiah 40, 13, who has measured the spirit of Yahweh or what man shows him his counsel? And in Romans eleven thirty three and 34, this is a, a really loved and beloved passage in this church. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? So, so we don't always understand the mind of the Lord. In verse 2, God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, whom you love. So it's his only son, and it's the son that he loves. Now, at this point, I think we, we have to like, bring some clarification. So this is not the only son, but as we saw last week, there was another son, but there's two different thoughts to that. One is Ishmael, the other son, is now gone. So in one sense, Abraham has lost his, his firstborn son that he had by Hagar. So he's lost, that, like that relationship looks different. But then also, this is the only son of promise that God 
um, is going to fulfill ultimately his gospel promise through. And so it's his only son in that sense. And so what's happening here is that, now listen, God is giving Abraham a command that is contrary both to God's nature and to God's promise. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. This is the perplexity of God. Sometimes when we are faced with the perplexity of God and we, we, we come full circle in a situation, we can look back and we get clarity in hindsight, right? You can look back and you can go, man, I don't know what God was doing. I didn't know what God was doing in that situation. But now I look back and I'm like, oh, now I see what God's doing. Sometimes we won't ever find out. Sometimes we can go through things and we never totally understand. I'll never understand what God was doing in 2007 when four of our staff members, ages 19, 20, and 21, were killed in an automobile accident. I'll never in this life understand that. I don't get to know that. That's not for me to know in this life. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? There's a depth to God's knowledge and wisdom that even if there are certain things that even if God explained to me, I wouldn't get it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you imagine, you imagine sitting down, like, who's, who's a smart person? Einstein was smart, right? He's, he made up some equations and stuff and, like, sit down with Einstein. Like, explain to me that MC squared thing. Well, me and Einstein could go through all that nutty undertoned coffee, whole pot of it. And about four hours later, you know how much I know about E equals MC squared? Goose egg. Because I don't get it. Like this, like we're, on, we're in different places, right? But I bet you if he's a good teacher, there's some things he could teach me that would start me on a path of loving science or physics or whatever. The likelihood of me ever loving Physics is very small. There's this, there's this idea, I think, sometimes where we, as it's human nature, isn't it, to demand to know things that we just not, we, 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 can't, we can't handle it. We don't have the bandwidth. We don't have the depth of knowledge. We don't have the capacity to understand. You can't put God-sized knowledge into a man-sized understanding sometimes. So what God does is, he shows us things of himself. He takes us through trials and testing so that we might grow in our confidence in his provision for our lives. So that when we come out of it, we're like, okay, okay, I don't always get it, but I trust you. We say with Job, even though if you slay me, I'll serve you. So what's, what's the response of Abraham? Well, I love this. This brings us to our third point. Abraham displays simple obedience in the response to the perplexity of God in this demand. Let's just look for a second in, in these few verses here. God says, take your son, your only son. Now watch how in verse 3, Abraham responds. He rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey. He took some young men. He cut the wood for the burnt offering. He went to the place which God had told him. He traveled for three days. Simple obedience. I'll tell you something that's interesting. If you go back to Genesis 12, when we first meet the man Abram, who would become Abraham, the, the verbiage of the two passages is almost identical. Decades have passed, and God still speaks the same way to Abraham, and Abraham still responds in faith. Still responds in faith. Well, what does the response of faith look like? Obedience. 
If I believe, you, like you want to know what, like how do, how do I know if my faith is real? Do you obey the Lord? Do you love his word and you love his commandments? David, we've, we've spent a lot of time in the last year reading corporately Psalm 119. One of the reasons we've done that is because it turns our hearts. That, that psalm is, 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 has sustained the persecuted church because it turns our hearts towards loving the Lord for his instruction to us. Like if you have a desire for God's word and you desire to obey, that's the fruit of faith. Simple faith drives us through the perplexity of God. We walk by faith. So we're not just called by faith. We walk by faith. Abraham just acts at this point in his life. He's tr- we see what happens when he takes matters into his own hands, right? We've had, we got enough of those examples, right? You know what happens when you take matters into your own hands. Some of the wives are like, yeah. Yeah, remember that one time and we lost the house and the car. Like, you know, like, don't, don't go there, ladies. Like, don't, don't beat them up too bad. But, like, we know we've all been in situations where you take matters into your own hands. We see that in Scripture, stories like Saul, Samson, King David. Like, we have these, these examples of that. But right now, what, we're, what Abraham's doing is he's just acting. He's just acting in obedience, this is how faith works itself out. Del Ralph Davis says this, when God is not clear, you go on walking in the darkness by faith and obedience until he brings the light. When God is not clear, just keep walking in the darkness by faith and obedience until he brings the light. One thing that Abraham knows in all of this is that God is for me, not against me. I believe that the uptick that we're seeing right now in what's being called deconstruction I think man so many people are walking away from the faith let me tell you something you will not walk away from the faith if you walk in the faith in obedience just doing what God's told you to do we have enough clarity in our if we just live obediently listen Abraham made some huge mistakes he did not walk away from the faith because those who are in Christ Christ will be persevering in you till the end. Till the end. You don't have to be afraid of that. Just press into obedience. Just walk in obedience. Action word, action word, action word on the timeline. He's just doing, he's acting. I think sometimes we feel like the faith, like the faith that saves us, like when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus for salvation, that that's like good for salvation. Listen, we walk by faith. Scripture tells us, not by sight. We're saved by faith, and we live by faith, and we walk by faith. In who? In the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We trust in Jesus. We take him at his word. I think it's also important to look and consider the faith of Isaac, because we said there are three here I am statements. One of them's right in the middle, and it's Isaac. Isaac's carrying the wood. Isaac's being faithful. I want to consider him for just one moment, he had been faithful because he had watched his father's obedience in faith. He saw his dad's faith. He had faith in his dad and in the father his dad had faith in. He had faith in the heavenly father. Listen, parents, we cannot save our children. You can't, you, no matter how hard you try, you cannot, I want you to just, let's, let's um, just for a second, there's, there are moms and dads sitting here, and I'm one of them. And we wrestle with the decisions that our sons and daughters make. Their salvation is not your responsibility. 
Now, we have responsibility to God and very clear things in Scripture in terms of how we raise our children. We're told to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. But what we can do is live lives that make much of Jesus. Live lives that are authentic in our faith. Love the Lord. Love others. Care about the dying. Care about the lost. Care about the orphan and the widow. Care about other people more than you care about yourself. An example, like what is a life lived? Like Isaac has watched his father live out this faith. And so now he's just in step with that. He's the son of promise. And we can't save our children, but you better believe they're paying attention to the authenticity of our faith. They're watching, right? They're paying attention. Consider Isaac's faith and be challenged and be encouraged. And number four, we learn in verses 11 through 18 that God is our provider. Jesus is our savior and our substitute. God is our provider in the story God provides for Abraham. When we get to verse 11, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't lay your hand on the boy. Don't, don't, don't do this. What Abraham is learning is that, is that God will meet all of our needs in Christ Jesus. Much of the language in the story reminds us of Jesus. We talked about that earlier. But what's happening here is that the Lord is providing and Abraham's faith is growing. God's providing the sacrifice. That's the gospel. God provides the sacrifice. God substitutes in my place the ultimate sacrifice in his son. God is the provider. In fact, this moment in the story is so monumental for Abraham. You go to Hebrews 12, 2, and the scripture says that Jesus is the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the one who brings our faith to completion. So it's like the writer of Hebrews is saying, God, like Jesus gives us faith, but then in time, he brings that faith to completion. So it's a journey of faith, right? So it's a, it's a, it's a process that God takes us from the point, the point that he saves us to the point that he ultimately makes us eternally just like Jesus, conform to his image. And then this is so cool. At the end of the story, it's easy to read this story and skip over us and buzz and those, those, those people that ain't from Andrews. You're a funny name. There's some funny names in my life. Uh, Tuck's strength coach is named Deej, D-E-E-G-E. Then you, see, you meet some funny names. You meet some people with some funny names. You never Imagine if your name was Buzz. <laughs> oh, man, Uzz. Buzz and buzz. I, like, I wonder if I'm just picturing like snaggle tooth, knuckle busting 12 year olds, like them two boys. There's no telling what that. Anyway, that's got nothing to do with the story, but that's my imagination. Us, the firstborn, and buzz his brother. Buzz <laughs> and buzz. Kimuel, the father of Aram. This is cool. That, that, that name, Chesed, is. The name that basically means um, the loving kindness of the Lord. This is a, this is a, a cool name. But, the, but those last few verses, what they're doing is they're pointing to the future. And they're saying, there's hope for the future because Rebecca is named there. And she would become the wife of Isaac. And it would be through Rebecca that God would continue the promise. 
God is even in this story pointing us to the fulfillment of the promise. So the fifth thing that we see um, in the text is hope for the future. God always has a plan for the future. God's God's never at a loss. He's never confused. He's never wondering what's going to come next. So in conclusion, I want to take you to this one moment in verse 5 and and give an application for us. Abraham said to his young men, to, to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. So let's think about this. So here's the story. Abraham is taking his son, the, 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 his, again, gospel undertones, his only son, the son he loves. And he's taking him over to be sacrificed. And he says to his guys after three days, y'all stay here. We're going we're gonna to go over here, do business with God. And then me and the boy are coming back. Now, I want you to think about this. Because the writer of Hebrews, Spencer took us there last week, so I won't go. Hey, let's do it. Let's read it. Let's read Hebrews chapter, uh, geez, three verses. Might as well. It's so good. Hebrews chapter 11 gives us some insight into what's going on in Abraham's mind. We have the insight of New Testament hindsight. What's going on in Abraham's mind in verse 5 when he says, me and the boy are going to come back. Hebrews eleven seventeen. by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac and he who had received the promise was in, in the act of offering up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Wait here, guys, we'll take the boy up here and me and him going to come back. Why? Because if God has to raise him from the dead, he'll raise him from the dead. But the boy ain't dying. If he's dying, he ain't staying. I don't know. Perplexity of God. I don't know how this will work out, but I know it will work out. I know whom I have believed in that he is able to keep what he has committed to me against that day, the New Testament writer would say. I don't know what God's doing, but I know that my faith in God has been proven time and time and time again. Always he's been faithful. Maybe he's going to do a resurrection. You know how many resurrections had happened in history up until this point? Yeah, right. Zero. There's 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 no like concept of resurrection. It's never happened. It's not like, well, there's that one, you know, Elijah, Elisha, that one. I get them boys confused, but one of them, wasn't there a resurrection over there, that one, that one girl's kid? It's not like they're trying to like, did this ever happen, Lazarus? No, like none of that's happened. It's, there's no example of resurrection. And yet Abraham believes in resurrection. Philippians chapter 3 says this, writing after the resurrection, of Jesus, Paul says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Abraham's hope was resurrection. Your hope, my hope, resurrection. Abraham believed in a concept that had never, 
ever been done before. And he's put forth as the example of faith for us. This is the high watermark of his life in the high watermark of the book of Genesis where he goes, okay, God, even if you have to raise him from the dead, I know you'll do it because your promises will hold true. And it is completely contrary to your person and your character to do something like sacrifice this child. It's a pagan idea. It's a pagan idea. God won't, God won't do that. And Abraham goes, even, even if you have to resurrect him. And the writer of Hebrews says, and that's what happened. It wasn't a bodily resurrection, but it was a resurrection in the sense that Abraham trusted God in that way. For us, the writer of Philippians says, hey, you know, you know what will keep you from deconstructing? You know what will keep you from exasperating? You know what will keep you from turning away from the faith? You know what will keep you from drowning in your own fear? You know what will keep you from losing the battle with anxiety and depression? Fix your eyes on the empty tomb of Jesus. Whereby he crushed death, pulled out its sting, defanged the enemy, nailing your sin and my sin to the cross, putting it to death. He left it dead and rose victorious to say, just as he would say to Abraham, keep your hope in the resurrection, that you may know him and the power of his resurrection. In the perplexity of God, when we can't figure it out, we know this, there's an empty tomb. Amen, Red Oak? Tomb is empty. We celebrate that and we live in that reality. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you take your word, your truth, your promises, and that as you have fulfilled much in Christ, you would fulfill promises that are for us in our generation, personally and individually in our own lives. The promise of your faithfulness, the, the promise of your provision, the promise of your love, the promise of your presence abiding with us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us. The promise of your continuing, ongoing presence in our lives. The promise of hope and peace and grace. The promise to prosper us spiritually in our lives, to make us overwhelmingly conquer through our faith. Help us to trust in you always the way Abraham did. God, so many foul-ups. We've studied this man's life, and there's been so many mess-ups. But in this incredible moment, it's like he finally had it all click. And he fixed his eyes on Jesus, not even knowing exactly what he was fixing his eyes on, the hope of resurrection that would one day, with perfect knowledge, be re revealed to him. But for us, we know in hindsight, what you've done. Help us to live the faith of those who follow a resurrected Lord and to live victoriously in Jesus' name. Amen.